over to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast, where we have uncensored conversations, we exchange information, and we provide resources to all the listeners and the viewers of this international worldwide podcast. We're streaming on more than 12 major podcast platforms. You can also watch these interviews on the free version of Spotify, as well as our YouTube channel, which is my company's name, Penton Pending Consulting Solutions, LLC. I'm your Fire Medic CEO host, LP. we got a special guest in building from one of our other series that's going to be premiering soon called Sibling Bonds. we got newly minted, newly licensed, newly polished, ready to use her drugs and sharp instruments, LVN slash LPN Ashley, who is just such a wonderful person. We're going to be talking about three cases in this episode under our true crime banner. So we're going to be doing different stuff and we're going to be focusing more and more on true crimes because Mrs. LP is ready to get on the mic and she's ready to get in front of the camera. So y'all, I'm telling you, I know y'all love my handsome face, but Mrs. LP is just to throw low. I want to talk to you, Ashley, about three cases. Afterwards, we're going to just have another story about a missing person. And this episode is going to be called Medical crimes and this is part one so we're going to be covering these medical crime cases that we see in breaking news stories some of them are going to be historical some of them are going to be current the reason that we're doing this is because i am a retired paramedic and firefighter and she's a nurse who better to talk about medical crimes than medical professionals we know the lingo we know all about the medical side we're clinicians and so we're not just talking to talk we're walking walk. we ain't telling you what we heard only we're telling you what now, I want you to give us a brief background of who you are, Ashley, because, you know, I can give you a CV, but I like the guests to talk about themselves. Plus, you've heard me say it before, I love highlighting educated black women on this podcast. And you're part of the BIPOC community, you're biracial, so you still got black in you, you're still a black woman to me, because that's how the country looks at you, right? Right. So, the mic is yours. All right. A little bit of background on me. I was an interior designer until COVID. And then that changed everything. And I wanted to be able to give back in action. So I wanted to be able to get right up close and personal with the problem, the pandemic. So that's what made me totally change career path and go into nursing. But what'll come out in that other piece that LP is working on, sibling bonds. My very last straw. And I was ready to choke him, uh, choke our, their father, my stepfather to death. He was turning purple and everything. And um, Ashley stopped me and I didn't want to stop. I was a little bitter. I was, I was honestly a little bit bitter at that point for, for a little while. Um, but, you know, it's just, and I, I don't know if everyone remembers that detail of that moment, but, um, and I, I don't know if I've even shared that, but like just that, that was a real feeling at that moment, just because we had all been through so much and it was, um, <laughs> I just really wanted to put it into all of that, no matter what I had to deal with at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, uh, it's crazy how mind works, how feelings work. 
is that I'm also former foster youth. So I grew up in the system. I've done a few publications. As he mentioned, recently graduated from nursing school. That's a little bit of background on me, LP. He has an affinity to nice. We'll talk about that on another. Okay. On another. I'm just saying. I, I had to put When I thought about doing this series, talking about medical clients, you were one of the first people that I thought about bringing into this fold. Because there's so many medical crimes that we see that happen in the news that we really don't talk about a whole lot from that perspective. I don't see a whole lot of podcasts out in podcast world that cover medical crimes in particular. I want us to do different things with this podcast. So we're going to be talking about three cases today. And these cases are from different parts of the country. And this first case that we're going to be talking about comes from the News and Observer, a paper that you can find online. And this article was published this year. And this was about a nurse who secretly replaced hospital fentanyl and used super glue to cover her tracks. And when I saw this case, Mrs. LP was the one that gave it to me first off foremost. So that's why I say, you know, she, she just finds stuff. I didn't even know about this particular story. I want to play this two minute and 25 second audio of the story. Take a listen. Nurse secretly replaced hospital fentanyl and used super glue to cover tracks. Feds say a Wisconsin nurse reportedly tampered with medications at a hospital, secretly swapping one kind for another. Federal officials said the nurse, a 54 year old woman from Janesville, replaced fentanyl a powerful synthetic opioid, with saline, a mixture of salt and water, while working at a local hospital in 2021, according to a May 8 news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Wisconsin. An attorney for the nurse could not immediately be reached for comment by McClatchy News. After replacing the vials of fentanyl with a saline solution, she apparently resealed the containers with what appeared to be superglue to cover her tracks, officials said. Afterwards, she placed the tampered vials into the hospital's automated dispensing system, meaning some hospital patients would receive the wrong medication. Those experiencing severe pain, often cancer patients, are prescribed fentanyl, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A subsequent investigation into the nurse's transactions on the dispensing system revealed a pattern of fentanyl waste, officials said. When confronted by hospital officials and asked to submit to a drug test, the nurse declined and resigned instead. According to the release, she pleaded guilty to a charge of product tampering on May 8 following an investigation by the Food and Drug Administration and Drug Enforcement Administration, officials said. Her plea agreement includes a recommended sentence of 18 months in prison and a $30,000 fine. The maximum penalty for the charge is 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. A date for her plea hearing has not yet been scheduled. Multiple medical workers across the country have been charged with tampering with fentanyl supplies in recent years. A Kansas City health worker was sentenced to a year in prison in March for allegedly stealing fentanyl from two hospitals, according to KMBC. And a Colorado paramedic was sentenced to three years in prison for reportedly stealing over 1,000 vials of fentanyl, CBS News Colorado reported. Fentanyl, like other opioids, can be highly addictive, according to the American Addiction Centers, and because medical professionals have increased access to the drug, Theft has been a major issue in hospitals. I want to get your thoughts on this case that has this nurse, this licensed professional, this clinician who took an oath like you took, just like I took. Remember now I said, first do no harm, no the Hippocratic oath. What do you think about that case when I sent it to you? Because I know you took notes. 
Yeah, I, I want the unedited notes. Don't sugarcoat shit. This is real talk. It's uncensored. If you got to drop the bombs, whatever they are, say what it is. So, and I'll try not to stare at the notes too much. And before you do that, let me yeah. give the trigger warning. This is the Trigger Warning Talk Podcast. We're sponsored by Spotify for Podcasts. We're produced by my company, Pension Pending Consultant Solutions, LLC. If you are triggered at any point during this podcast and you need immediate help, call 911 or wherever you live in the world, call your local three-digit emergency number. That'll typically give you police, fire, EMS. If you don't have an immediate need but you need help, in the show notes for every episode that we put out, we have a bunch of resources because we cover domestic violence, sexual-based offenses, human and sex trafficking, true crime. And at the end of every episode, we do a missing person case like we'll do at the end of this interview. We have the numbers for those entities. If you have or know someone who has any suicidal issues, you can call here in the States, toll-free 24-7-988. Only here in the United States, 24-7, toll-free 988. the mic is yours. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that and like you said healthcare professionals at, at your level or my level they're taking an oath but at the same time this woman who pled guilty to those crimes was no longer that same person that took that oath addicts can't really take oaths that they can uh, <laughs> that they can legitimately stick to so this what you have is you have an addict providing care to a patient and taking away from the care that should have been provided to that patient, which is a very dangerous predicament to be in. She's no longer that healthcare professional. She's not mentally stable. Anybody that's got that level of addiction, they're not in their right mind, obviously. I don't know how much harm her swapping out those bags could have done to those cancer patients. Is that just going to make them miserable until somebody realized that they just had what was it saline in there as opposed to the fentanyl that they needed to deal with their cancer pain or was it to the point where it was life-threatening it doesn't mention that anybody died from what she did but i do have a lot of uh, mixed feelings about that obviously i feel terrible for the patients or the clients that that happened to and i wonder how long it did take them to catch on um, and oftentimes if you've got you know what's how the facility was that she worked at, but if you've got a shortage of nurses on shift, so you've got overworked staff, a lot of stuff falls through the cracks. So how long did this go on for? Yes. You know, how long were these patients suffering? Was it patients starting to make complaints about my pains not being relieved that started to throw up red flags and it just kept happening on her shifts? Or what transpired for it to get to the point where somebody was ready to drug test her. So those are some of my initial thoughts. Let me tap in to talk to the audience about fentanyl. So I'm going to put on my paramedic hat. Fentanyl is one of the most addictive and dangerous opioids that's been produced by me. And the reason that I say that is because we see in breaking news stories almost every single day. We don't see every story. Across this country, fentanyl is being put in almost every drug that's being use not just from a prescription base where you used to get fentanyl from your doctor i'm talking about street drugs we see fentanyl and when i say we specifically ems we would see people ODing all the time 
I was given out Narcan, which is a narcotic antagonist. It reverses the effect of the opioid, fentanyl, and other opioids, like it was Tic Tac. If we ran 10 calls, four of them would easily be an OD. Easily. Sometimes more, four to six sometimes. When I think about the opioid crisis, I remember, before I get into the fentanyl specifically, but I can talk about that too. I remember before it was called the opioid crisis, how law enforcement, since we're talking about crimes, I'm going to tell you how law enforcement used to deal with medical crimes when it came to drugs, specifically illegal drugs. A 911 call would come out, somebody called because they found somebody OD. It could be somebody they know or somebody that they just saw on the park bench or whatever. Police come, secure the scene, they do whatever, life-saving, basic life support measures, including maybe doing CPR on the person if they were unresponsive. Not unconscious, because unconscious just means that they're knocked out. They still have a pulse and they're still breathing. EMS can show up after they say, okay, you guys don't have to stay seen and secure. We go in there. We start checking vitals, bagging them, giving them oxygen, that is, and doing chest compressions if they were unresponsive and giving them Narcan. Once they came around, if we were able to revive them, either from an unconscious OD or an unconscious unresponsive state, the police will be all over them. Tell me where you got these drugs from. If you don't tell me, they would threaten them with arrest. A lot of them, pretty much all of them got arrested. The ones that didn't, it was like a quid pro quo type of scenario. If you tell us where you got this shit from, we'll let you go. We want to know everything. Who, where, how, when, what, why, all of this stuff. Like, they had a whole list of stuff that they would tell these patients who are now criminals also. For the most part, it worked. That was because it was in the black neighborhoods, the melanated neighborhoods. And in some of the non-melanated communities, it was kind of like that. But specifically, more so in the melanated communities, because when I would go get patients, that lived in non-melanated communities, because not all urban communities are melanated only. I would see a difference in how they would handle those patients. It was more hush-hush. It wasn't as aggressive. It was more of an understanding that they're just having problems. Mm -hmm. They're just having some issues. They got some family issues. They got some relationship issues. They got some issues with kids. They got some issues with their life. Or whatever they it was just that, that I would hear that all the time. They they just had an itch. We're gonna give them when it became more and more where you saw non-melanated folks becoming addicted to these opioids, not just crack, because crack is not an opioid, cocaine is not an opioid, mm -hmm. K2, the synthetic weed, is not an opioid. There's a list of Opioids that qualifies opioid. You got fentanyl, you got morphine, some of your other prescription drugs that qualify for them. Where if I gave somebody Narcan for those ODs, typically it would work. But if I had a patient that OD'd on some K2 and I looked at his pupils, because that's one of the first things that we do, we check for needle marks, we check their eyes, check their pupils, and if they're pinpoint, that's a sign of an opioid use. Break out the Narcan, either uh, intranasal, you can give it IM in the muscle, you can give it IV. It's quick to just give it either intranasally or IM. Took me in about 30 seconds or so, the patient would wake up like they came out of a nightmare. 
and we give like arms length distance in that point because either they're going to wake up swinging, they're going to wake up upset, they're going to have some projectile vomiting. A lot of times they're pissed because you blew their high. So I'm just telling you, many patients curse me out and want to fight me because I blew their high. It's like, I just got through doing four rounds of CPR. You were clinically dead. You were clinically dead because when you don't have a pulse and you don't have any respirations, you're not unconscious anymore. You're dead. Dead is dead. Now, you're not dead to the point where you had decomposition. You weren't smelling and rotting, but you were dead. So we had to revive you. We had to work on it. I'll get off my soapbox man. I want to ask you about something when I finished this state. Once it became the opioid crisis because more and more non-melanated people in more and more non-melanated communities were having the same increased problems with these opioids. Now it's a crisis. The police toned down even across the board, even in melanated communities. I can't tell you, Ashley, the last time when I was working in the field, I worked from from 06 to 2020. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the last time that I saw a police officer arrest a patient who OD, no matter what their ethnicity was once the opioid crisis was named i can't tell you that they come on the scene do exactly what i said they would do at first do whatever basic life support measures for the scene we come on the scene and they just stand back we're just securing the scene we're just making sure everybody's okay and when when the person who came to it we were able to revive them they wouldn't ask them shit they didn't ask them where they got the drugs they didn't i mean unless they had weight you know i'm talking like drug shit or whatever like unless they had weight where they could distribute it or whatever they it looked like yeah y'all selling some shit if it wasn't no situation like that they could have all the paraphernalia in in the room whole house could be paraphernalia they didn't ask them shit and i was like I ain't got nothing to say. I ain't got nothing to say. Yeah. I can just go back in the squad club. We got it from here. And it was amazing to see how it transformed. And I was, the only thing I thought should have been like this from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because people are people at the end of the damn day. If I need a kidney, you've heard me say this before. If I need a kidney, I need one other human being, not a goat, not a giraffe, that meets two criteria. They're a willing donor and a match. That's it. Don't matter if it's a, a white woman. Don't matter if it's an Asian man. Don't matter what part of the world they live in. I just need another human being that's a willing donor and a willing match. That's it. When I talk about these medical crimes, like with the opioid crisis in particular, especially with fentanyl, I say, you know, when it comes to trauma, anybody can get it and anybody can get it. So for you, what are some of the things that you all learned about? Because you're freshly minted and licensed from your nursing medical school. What are some of the things that they hammered in your heads when you were in nursing school about opioids and overdoses and how to treat these patients? Well, one thing is the precautions that we put them on for reasons like you just said the projectile vomiting and and different things even even for alcoholics you know some of those some of those treatments we'd have to have some of those same type of precautions uh for those patients too but since the opioids are a depressant not a stimulant um 
you know, if we if we didn't know the difference between like an opioid and something that is a stimulant like uh, cocaine, then we're going to have a serious problem. Because if we give them something that can further put them into that that state sedation, if you will, we could kill them too. Yeah. So, and like you mentioned with the pinpoint pupils, we have to pay attention to what what those eyes look like, just as a basic assessment. If you know, if, say, if somebody comes into the ER room and something's wrong with them, but we don't know exactly what, then we would need to be doing that real fast head to toe assessment um, or neuro exam to be able to see what do those eyes look like, because the eyes tell a lot. Even for like a stroke patient, you know, you could have one that's dilated and one that's pinpoint and okay, they, they're having a problem or they're having increased intracranial pressure because their their brain is having uh, a hemorrhage. So the eyes are a huge red flag as a quick method to be an indication if it's opioid or maybe if they're, if, if it's something that's a stimulant, there will be a lot of other red flags with their behavior as well. It should be pretty obvious to tell the difference and what means to help that patient as fast as possible to get them stabilized. The medical term for the differences in the pupils, one being and one being pinpoint is anisocorin. That can be a sign of a big neurological issue. It could be a sign of a traumatic brain injury also. You have to be a YWHY clinician. Like my paramedic instructor said, I want to train every one of my students to be a Y paramedic. We thought he was talking about being like an imitator of him because his last name begins with Y. He was like, no, not, not a Y as far as me. A WHY paramedic. I want you to be a WHY EMT because all paramedics are EMTs, but not all EMTs are paramedics because it's a license. Sure, left. I start off as a LPN or LVN, then you go to a RN, and you know you can go up from that point. So same thing with medics. When we are talking about like dealing with different drugs, because most medics have to know at least thirty drugs, like the back of their hand. Uh, for nurses, what's the number that you all typically, on average, have to know? We had to study over 200. 200, yeah. Yeah, because they wanted us to know um, all the main drug classes because we don't know what we were going to see at clinical and we don't know what career path we might branch off to, so what patient population we're going to work with whether that's like dialysis patients or even if it's geriatrics, meds are all over the place, all type, oh, yeah. all type of category, you know? So it, we had to know a little bit of everything in case we had exposure to that when we come out and work in real life, in the real field. And we even just working at facilities, we'd have some, you know, one patient might have 20, 30 pills and they wanted us to look up each med so we know what we're giving to that patient if they have a question we need to be able to answer it you know right. we can't just hand them a pink purple and blue pill and not have a rhyme or reason to do so but do i remember all of those no i only remember the ones that i see frequently so well you know once you get your license you carry around your nursing drug your yeah. uh, nurse's drug handbook like i got one that's 
that it, you know you can pull out your smartphone and fucking search them. You know, you look for the you know the dosages. You know, is it a weight based drug or not? You know, right. like opioids, a lot of them are weight based. So when I would give out fentanyl, you know, we call it mics or micrograms. So we use the metric system a lot. If I wanted to find out how much drugs to give to a person, you know, you take their weight and you divide it by 2.2. And that would give you the metric version of that particular weight. Let's say you got a person that weighs 200 pounds, you're going to give them 90 mics of fentanyl. And so this is why as clinicians, not ambulance drivers, because we used to be ambulance drivers way, way, way back in the day. But as medicine has advanced and as EMS in particular has been given more autonomy, we had to do more training. We had to get more skills. You know, me being a medic, I could put somebody in a medically induced coma with just you and I. I just need an extra set of hands and thank goodness that you got medical training. But if you were actually the financial, you know, CPA or the electrician, I could still put somebody in a medically induced coma with just you and I, because I got the same drugs and the same equipment that they got in the ER. I just need an extra set of hands and I got the same training. We have to get acclimated to know that these careers that we've picked in medicine, especially being people of color, there's so many openings for opportunities, so many. And when I hear people say that, oh man, you know, it's hard to find jobs out here, pick a STEM field, pick any of them, because EMS and fire takes up the first two letters of science and technology. And I talk about that a lot. I want to go to this next case that is on court TV. And this is the case of Elijah McCain. And Elijah McCain was a teenager who was walking down the street and somebody called 911 it was a similar situation to like a trayvon martin young kid walking down the street i think he had a ski mask on he was like i said somebody called the cops three officers pulled up on him as he was walking and they asked him some questions and end up being where they tried to subdue him and he told them he was had he had some medical history of mental illnesses or illness they end up calling 911 in terms of EMS, two medics showed up and they gave him this drug called ketamine. Ketamine is a horse tranquilizer. And it's typically used in only three circumstances. One is sedation-assisted intubation. So to put somebody in a medically induced coma. Pain management, because if they are allergic to a particular opioid like fentanyl or morphine, you can give them ketamine or what they gave this particular drug to him for, they put it under the excited delirium syndrome category. Now, excited delirium, real quick, is basically when you see news stories, somebody walking or running up and down the street, partially or fully bucket naked. They got the power and the strength of like 10 humans. They call it having superhuman power where 10 people or more got to hold them down. They're sweating profusely like they just got out of the shower or and didn't draw. They might be talking incoherently. Those are signs of excited delirium syndrome. So ketamine is one of the drugs that you can give to calm them down, chill them out. Well, when these medics administered this ketamine, allegedly they gave him too much because it's a weight-based drug and he died. I want to play the news story about that real quick from Court TV. 
Speaking of verdicts, I got the red tie on. We have breaking news in Colorado. Another verdict reached in a case that made national headlines. Jurors convicted a Denver area police officer of criminally negligent homicide and third degree assault and the 2019 death of Elijah McLean. A second officer was acquitted. Uh, McLean died after being put in a neck hold by a third officer and pinned to the ground. Paramedics then injected McLean with an overdose of ketamine. Ketamine, like, like ketamine we're talking about in the Take Care of Maya case. That third officer and two paramedics are awaiting their trial. What are your thoughts about this case? I know you don't have a whole lot of info on it, but from what you heard, what do you think about it? One thing that uh, I don't know, it just, it just like shouts out is just the either improper training that officers as well as other healthcare professionals might have for that to happen. That's another thing they drilled into us uh, in nursing school was knowing how to do proper weight-based dosage calculations, which it could have took somebody five seconds to you know estimate what that boy's weight was assuming that's the right drug that he needed and make a pretty good estimate of his weight to find out what dosage would have been a safe dose to administer so how they can just do that i don't know if that was their sympathetic nervous system kicking in that just <laughs> amped them up to just make that rash judgment call like this is what he needs this is the amount he needs. Let's give it to him. No questions asked. But that's the same toxic decision-making skills that has police officers get scared of young black people and pull out firearm and shoot them. It's the same thing. That's my initial thoughts on that one. I'm going to give you some concise stuff because I feel my heart rate, my palpitations are increasing and I'm getting pissed. And I'm getting pissed because it wouldn't matter if Elijah McCain was a white kid whatever it is it makes it even worse because we see how black people when it comes to medicine are treated far worse there are so many studies that are out that show even from a historical perspective again ketamine can be used as a pain medicine there are many stories that are available on google it google black people in pain medication you will find stories out there that talk about from a historical perspective, even to today, a buddy of mine who is a veteran in EMS, he's an EMS chief in the Midwest, he did a presentation about this very topic in terms of not this story, but he talked about how black people are not given pain medication at the same rate as non-black people are. And he had data and statistics on that. I've given out care. I worked on the critical care team and at the fire department because we had ketamine also. I remember when I was talking with our medical director when we first got ketamine, when it first arrived to the company, every quarter we would do a training with the critical care team because anything new, uh, any new procedures, any new drugs, any new equipment that the company wanted to use, the critical care team was kind of like the guinea pigs. We talk about ketamine ad nauseum. And remember what I said, there's really only three reasons. This is across the country that you would give ketamine pain management, excited delirium, and sedation-assisted innovation. You don't get it for anything else. And like you said, it's not just knowing the weight because you get good at guesstimating people's weight when you become a clinician. I can look at somebody and say, you know, she looks like she's about 
above 20. He looks like he might be too fit. You get good at estimating and it's better to give less than more because you can't, it's just like if you pour Kool-Aid in a pitcher of water, you can't take it out. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's in it. You can't unring that bell. And the other thing about ketamine is not just knowing the weight and not just knowing why you're giving it. You got to know what contraindications are with any medicine from aspirin to a ketamine to any legal drug because illegals, you know, it's just a roll of the dice. But you got to know the indications. You got to know the contraindications, certain reasons why you won't give it certain situations. When I looked at the news story, and again, go to Court TV or Google the Eliza McCain story, and you're going to get more detailed information. And I'll have the links to these stories in the show notes for this podcast. This is the Trigger Warning Talk podcast sponsored by Spotify, created and produced by Pension Pending Consultant Solutions, LLC. If you're triggered at any point during this interview, and you need immediate help, call 911. If you don't need immediate help, call one of the numbers that we have listed in the show notes. If you're suicidal, you can call 988. That number is available 24-7, 365 or 366 if you sleep here, here in the U.S. If you're watching and or listening to this podcast outside of the U.S., call your local emergency hotline or get online and find your local resources to help you if you're tripped by what we're talking about. Today we're talking, and this is the beginning of our series on medical crimes with Ashley Asawalu. I pronounced that right. I can pat step on the back of that. I should have been a linguist, but that's a whole nother conversation. We'll talk about that later too. Ashley, when I saw this story, I remember when it first came out, I got the breaking news story because me being an active shooter, hospital event consultant, I get all these stories. When EMS is called by law enforcement to intervene in a medical or potential medical situation, you know what law enforcement role is? They go from being law enforcement to being a medical provider until EMS gets there. So what happened with George Floyd, when Derek Chauvin had his knee on his neck and you could see George Floyd circling the drain, all those people that see a humanity was trying to get him to get off of his neck, including talking to his three partners and trying to get them to help get him off of them, off of his neck. He should have became a first responder in terms of the medical side because they're all trained, at least on CPR. They're trained on doing bleeding control. They carry tourniquets. They know how to at least put direct pressure on a bleeding injury. But for a mental health issue, there's not a lot that they can do other than to de-escalate that. This is where verbal judo comes into play. As a law enforcement officer, you have to be trained almost more in verbal judo than using one of these. And this is a plastic mop of a Glock. No ammo, no moving parts, no metal, anything like that. This is what I use when I train on guns. So it's not just about pulling the firearm out or pulling the Thomas A. Swift electric rifle or taser. You got to know these terms. Taser is an acronym. It's not about just pepper spraying somebody like we were talking about off camera or macing somebody or hitting them with the baton or the billy club or the nightstick or the flashlight. You got to do a field assessment with this patient, with this alleged perk, and find out what's going on because most people don't just wake up and flip the fuck out. Like something precipitated that act, that action. In this case, this young man was just walking down the street. He wasn't breaking into houses, according to the, all the news reports. He didn't rob, he didn't rape, he didn't mug. Just walking down the street in some dark clothing and had a bag of candy. And so when those medics showed up on the scene, their role is we're taking over this patient's 
care. All we need you to do is to secure the scene. I don't need you to do shit else. You know what I need you to do something? If this kid goes into cardiac arrest, we got to do chest compressions and see. Every two minutes, we're going to rotate. So it's two of us medics. After I do mine and he does his, then you officer one do two minutes, you officer two do two minutes, you officer three do two minutes, and then we're going to go back and we got to keep doing CPR. That's the only thing I need y'all to do. Secure the scene and give me an extra set of hands for two minutes if we got to put hands on this guy's chips. I don't need you to do nothing else. You can't, a cop, a police officer, no disrespect to them or any of them, I don't care what ethnicity you are, there's not one police officer that can tell me anything about ketamine unless they are men. Because there are some police officers in some municipalities, like where I come from, there was a municipality in St. Louis County, they called it the Department of Public Safety in one of these munis. So these people were police, fire, and EMS trained. Now, unless you work for a department like that, you can't tell me what a patient needs as far as medicine. I'm going to look at you like, uh, can you just secure the scene? It was two medics on the scene. Two! Two medics! They carry ketamine, so they are licensed and authorized and certified to not only carry it on their ambulance, but to administer it. It wasn't an EMT and a medic working together. It was two medics. Even if me being one of those medics, I have a brain fart. I got my clinical operating guidelines, standard operating procedures in my ambulance. I got it on PDF on my damn smartphone like we were talking about. I don't have to remember every fucking thing because I can also... On a friend. Hey, med control. This is medic unit 10. We got a patient who appears to be acting out. He doesn't really qualify for excited delirium, but he's kind of flipping the fuck out. What do you want us to give him? Because, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about the excited delirium, but he does maybe meet some of the criteria for some other sedation, like a benzo whether it's Ativan, because in EMS, you get a lot of autonomy. And again, in those books, those protocols that you have, you're supposed to memorize them like the back of your hand, for one. But if you, I'm not carrying my protocol book outside of the ambulance. So I can always either go to my protocols, I can phone a friend, I can bounce ideas or thoughts off of my other partner who's a clinician on the same license level. I mean, it was no excuse. None, 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 none. Did I say none? None. I'll rest with that. I want to go to the next story because we're going to be winding down this part one. And this is something that you brought to my attention. And this is a story that I kind of heard about, but I didn't really get into it. And apparently they've made a movie. There's a Netflix special. This is the story of the good news. I'm going to pass the mic to you as I share this on the screen. That's why y'all got to watch these interviews because y'all missed them. We love listeners. Please continue to listen. But we want you to watch it also because you missed some of these graphics. Tell us about this story about the good news. Okay, so this guy worked in the ICU. And part of what I'm getting is from the movie. I need to go back and read the whole docuseries. But he formed this habit. After he got comfortable at a facility of spiking hold, bags. Hold that thought. I want to play the trailer and then I want you to pick up from there. All right. Hey. <laughs> What's going on? Just, you know, work's been pretty awful without you there. You and I were partners. You know, I don't want to talk about work. Is it because 
What they're saying is true. Stop. How the girls? They're really good, but I'm working a lot. You still owe me for last Friday. But it can wait, really. Oh, no. I'm sorry. No, no, no. There's 50. Sorry about that. Thank you. Bye, Bye, guys. There's Lachlan. This is Officer Braun. Do you remember Anna Martinez? Yeah. It was sudden. Mind taking a look at this? Huh. The insulin in her system, it's a double medication error, which is really rare. We understand that you work with a Charlie Cullen. Could he be involved in this? Hey there, lovebirds. I cannot get over how cute your Vanessa is. Who's Vanessa? Oh my god. There's insulin in her system. He's been at nine hospitals. Nine. What do you mean? No, the hospital would have done something. You would think so. so. Yeah. Do you remember working with someone named Charlie Cullen? Yeah. There was a rumor about him. They found insulin in a dead guy's sailing bag. Hey, girls. Yeah. Um, sit. Why are you being weird, Mom? He's been killing people without ever touching them. He's gonna get a new job, and it's all gonna continue. I hope you guys can hear me. He's walking right now. Hey! <laughs> As that clip showed, he was spiking the patient's bed. And it was a close friend. It was a colleague that started catching on to it. She she had some potentially fatal illness she was fighting while she was working, providing for her kids as a single mom. And so she was getting really sick, but she had to keep working until insurance kicked in to cover her own medication. Oh, she couldn't afford it. And she also couldn't afford to take care of her kids. So she was working, even though she shouldn't have been working. And he figured out how to work their medication administrator machine in a way where he could get the drugs to come out and then cancel the request. It was hard to track how much medication he was pulling out of those machines. And he started taking advantage of that when it came to spiking those patient bags as well. He was sneaking out the medication that she needed and also sneaking out medication that he wanted to give to patients that didn't need it. The clip mentioned the insulin. He also did it with digoxin. His colleague that they showed there mentioned that there was a double medication error meaning wrong patient and wrong med. It's extremely hard to do both of those things. One can happen if you don't do your three times of checking it to make sure their name, their birthday, double check the drug, you're checking other things like expiration date. But if you're doing proper protocol of checking that drug before administering it, 
it's a low chance that something like that could happen. But to give it to the wrong patient and the wrong medication is very, it is difficult to do both of those. So he was giving patients that were not diabetic insulin. So what that was doing to their blood sugar was it was skyrocketing it, or I guess I could say severely depressing it to the point of no return, to the point where it was fatal. And he, unlike that first article we looked at today, he did not have a motive. There was no addiction there. He just had a very sick, twisted thought process of being able to get away with it. And for the fact that, and that it's a really sad thing, Oftentimes, there's a disconnect between facility and facility about communication. So if somebody leaves one and sometimes they don't do thorough background checks, and if they do, it's oftentimes it's easier for that facility to just let somebody go as opposed to do a full-fledged investigation because there might not be stuff they want people coming in and noticing about their actual facility. So in this nurse's case, that kept happening repeatedly they would make excuses to let him go and he was just happily going along to the next town or next location finding another nursing job and his friend mentioned the real life friend mentioned that he was charismatic and funny so he used those as his approach during the interview process and he was highly intelligent for the fact that he was able to get away with this possibly with around 400 victims though prosecuted on only 29. Wow. Yeah. I want to bring up on the screen two things since we're talking about taking your work. You mentioned one thing, which is talking about giving the right dose or making sure it's the right patient. So on the screen here, I want to show that's why you guys got to watch this shit because I'm telling you, like, you're going to miss one of the things I'm going to show you is called the six rights of safe medical or medication administration. And this is one of the things that, as a clinician, MT, medic, nurse, doctor, PA, RN, even if you work in a nursing home and you are or a certified med, you learn these six rights of medication administration. Number one, right patient. You ask the patient their first and last name. Does the order match the patient? Basic stuff. Number two, the medication. The damn bottle. Does the medication label match the order? And be vigilant with lookalikes and sound like meds because in EMS specifically, like if we have a cardiac arrest, some of the vials look very similar. They just got different color tops. Some of the boxes are very similar, rectangular boxes, just different colors. Number three, right dose. Is the strength and dosage match the order? Is it half, whole, or is it multiple tablets? Number four, right time. Does the administration time match the order? Before administering a PRN, or per required need medication ensure specified time interval has passed number five right route meaning how are you going to get it does the route match the order can this be crushed mixed in with other substances do the patient have any transdermal patches like do they have a pain patch a lidocaine patch or fentanyl patch on you know because if they do you want to take it off and rub it off you know make sure you got your bsi sensei your gloves there's so many routes to administer medications you can do an in intranasally like we were talking about earlier with the narcan the spray atomizer you can give it im 
in the muscle. So like if you were getting a vaccine, that's an eye injection. You can give it so cute and you pinch your belly. There's many ways to give it. You can give it sublingual under the tongue. So we give that when we give nitro or somebody's having chest pain, we'll spray 0.4 milliliters of nitro under the tongue. There's many routes to administer a drug. And then number six, the right documentation. Document immediately after the medication is administered. No digging, no doubt. If you don't know those six rights and if you don't memorize that shit and you don't do it every single time with every single patient, even if you got the same patient, whether it's pre-hospital or in-hospital or out of hospital, like they're coming for a doctor's appointment, you're talking about their meds or you're giving them a different med. Medicine is not an exact science. It is the practice of medicine. If you don't know and practice these six rights, somebody's going to die. And that's on you, Mr. or Mrs. Clinician. Or whatever your pronoun you want to call yourself. No disrespect to anybody. What say you about the six rights? I only got one thing to add. So since I'm in training, starting last week, we went over that as part of the training. It is now seven rights. It's since this year, the right to refuse is an official right of med administration. So it's seven official ones. Who knows? Maybe in the next five years, it'll be 10. No telling, but... (laughs) No, so thanks for saying it. Yes, yes. Any patient has the right to refuse medical care. So this is where the AMA or against medical advice thing comes into play. Thank you for adding that on there. It's very important for a lot of reasons. And the other thing I want to share, since we're talking about medication administration, is we did this thing. I don't know if you guys learned this or not, but we did this thing called the medication administration cross check. Let me bring it up on the screen. Please watch these podcast interviews. I can only tell you so much. You got to see it. The medication administration cross-check. I learned this in EMS. So we're going to simulate a medication administration cross-check. This is how clinicians make sure that those seven rights that we just talked about, here's how you go about doing that. Let's say we're on the ambulance and she's my partner. So let's say both of us are licensed to administer this. We got a patient that is having an asthma attack. So our protocols say because they have a history of asthma from an autonomy standpoint, I'm going to make sure that they're sitting up, that they're in an environment that's not keeping them from having trouble breathing, checking vitals, all this stuff is happening like that. So... I want to give them a bronchodilator in their butyrol. They don't have any more of their own inhaler. So I'm going to give them an updraft. This patient who is in respiratory distress, I want to give them some butyrol. Here's how the medication administration works. I look at you and I say, med check, and you say, ready? And I say, I'm going to give you, talking to the patient, but I'm talking to you also, I'm going to give you X amount of albuterol. You know, I'll give the dosage, or I'm going to give you dexamethasone. I say, I'm going to give you this dex, I'm going to give you this albuterol, that's the drug name, I'm going to give you this dose, and I'll give how much it is, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give it the route you know, giving it to you orally, or if I'm giving a dex, I can give it to you, you know, I mean, the rate, I can say I'm going to push it fast, I'm going to give it over X amount of time, and the reason, you're in respiratory distress, you have a history, your response is contraindications, meaning, why would you not give this drug? 
And if there is none, because you got a history of that, and you proved that, I can prove that you got your inhaler, and it shows what I'm getting ready to give you that's not in your health. There we go. If there is no contraindications, I'm going to say no contraindications. Otherwise, you want to verbally verify that they're on, because there might be some reason why I wouldn't give that particular drug. Your next response is volume, meaning quantity. Then I'm going to state the drug concentration. I'm going to state the volume to be administered in millimeters. I'm not going to say amp or vial because that's just not proper. I'm going to show the vial or the bottle or whatever that drug is in. I'm going to show it to you or if it's tablet, and I'm going to give it to you to say, I drew up whatever that dosage is, and I want you to verify that it's that dosage and it's that drug. I'm going to hand it to you. You're going to look at it. You're going to make sure that it's not expired. It's not cloudy. You don't have no floaties in it. If it's a liquid, it don't look like the top was already popped off of it and don't look like it got mold on it. If all of that passes your muster, you're going to say, sounds good, or give it, or go ahead. You're only saying four things. Rating, contraindications, volume, and sounds good, or ready, or go ahead. This happens in 30 seconds. Now, I know it took me like two minutes to explain it, but literally, you can do a medication administration cross-check in 10, 15, 20 seconds. Especially if you're working with a provider that's equal on licensure or higher than you. If I say I'm going to give this person buterol, you know what buterol is. You know how much to give. You know what situations not to give. You know the routes of administration. You know if it's expired or not. I can go on and on and on. Even if I'm working with somebody that's of less licensure. So let's say I'm the medic and I'm working with an EMT. Because again, all medics are EMTs, but not all EMTs are paramedics. So they can't administer this. They can draw it up. They can read. I just need another set of hands and eyes. When we're talking about these things, Google medication administration cross-check. Google six rights of medication administration or set. Anybody got a smartphone or an iPad or a computer? That's all we're saying. With this story, what is one of the things that you want to wrap up as we close out? What are your closing thoughts on this particular story? I hope that over time, there is some sort of improvement with licensed clinicians. It's a hard thing to hope for because there's such high demand, high turnover, because it's not the types of jobs that are for everybody. But I hope people... Healthcare professionals are able to come to a point where attention can be paid to both emergent situations and ongoing level of care where those sort of situations, whether it's a nurse with an addiction that's still in from patients or emergency staff does the wrong thing and causes the demise of a person, or you've got somebody that's a licensed professional just causing intentional harm to patients and it's able to drag on and it takes so long for it to be acknowledged and reprimanded. So I'm hoping eventually there can be a point where those type of behaviors decrease substantially so that the focus really can be on patient care and people entirely know what they're doing and on you know and i know that people work in double shifts or whatever the case might be there's sleep deprivation in there but if people can make a very strong effort to attempt to follow all of even just as you mentioned the six or seven rights following protocol 
helps prevent some of those mistakes. For us, for MedPass, we don't have a second person. It's kind of the opposite. We are told to keep people away from us so there's no interruptions because we might have like 30 patients that need their morning meds. And so we ourselves need to do all those checks before we administer it but yours is different because maybe a lot of times you were in emergency situations so to save time and get that patient what they needed real quick you have that second person there to quickly help you double check and we do something similar to that with narcotics for the most part it's like you want dead silence so you can focus on reading the the mar and comparing that to the med you have in front of you and make sure that patient gets again if it's not an emergent situation you want to make sure that patient gets that med within an hour of the scheduled administration for it standard you know there's exceptions to the rule sure. it's like a prn med yeah. where you know they need it for eight out of ten pain that just just started or something like that in general terms again i'm hoping it comes to a a point where some mindless mistakes, some mistakes that didn't have to happen or people with bad intentions aren't so prevalent in healthcare where you have so many situations where you got nurses taking opioids from patients, all these situations that could be avoided. So, you know, and I don't know on what grounds those sort of things could be decreased. You know, I don't know a catch-all solution to make the world a better place when it comes to healthcare and, and client care. Um, but I do hope that sooner than later, hopefully a lot sooner, that there's some changes happening. I think that that's a great way to close out. Having another clinician on the podcast to talk about these things from an academic standpoint, we're not just talking from an emotional standpoint. And we're not telling you what we heard. This is two clinicians talking about pharmacology, talking about legal issues in a sense, because these have a legal connotation. Obviously, you know, like the case with Elijah McCain is in court TV, right? This case was brought to trial. The person was arrested. The other case, if there's a trial, you know what's going to happen? If it ain't documented, it ain't done for one, right? Right. Two, that documentation that you put into the system, that defense attorney, when you're on the stand, and even the prosecutor to a certain degree, but especially that defense attorney for that family or that patient, they're going to bring up your report on the screen, on the big plasma or whatever they got, and all of your notes, whether they were typed or handwritten, are going to be on display in them in 3D. And they're going to pick apart every single thing that you did, that you put down, that you didn't put down. Or if it was five boxes and you only checked four, but you were supposed to check five, you're going to be on the hook. Because the goal is by the defense attorney to make you look as incompetent as you made yourself. You heard what I said. Their goal is to make you look as incompetent as you made yourself look if you got to go to trial. Because most medical people, you don't see a lot of medical cases that go to trial. Maybe some civil stuff, but a lot of that is more class action lawsuits. And so I know like an EMS, our medical director told us, he was like, hey, you know, if you got to do anything different than what's in your protocols, you better have some damn good documentation. You better be able to explain to me why you went outside of the protocols to achieve whatever the goal was, which was to limit 
that patient who was hurt, injured, dying, or dead. First, do no harm. That's what we started off with, right? Part of the Hippocratic Oath. So if you went outside of your protocol, which are your standard operating procedures and your clinical operating guidelines, whether it's in pre-hospital or in-hospital, you didn't have a damn good reason to be able to justify that. Because if that person has any adverse reaction or effect or long-term or fatality to what you did, you're going to have your name and lights for real. Ashley, I want to thank you so much. We're going to have some more. It's because I got all kinds of... I've been waiting to do this since we started. Actually, before we even started the podcast session, I've been waiting. I'm like, man, I'm like, I've been waiting to do this. I got all kinds of shit. I got all kinds of cases and stories. And I like that you're new, in a sense, yeah. to, to medicine. Because you're not cynical yet. Not yet. Give me time. No, 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 no. Hear me out. I hope you never, ever forget this. That you never become cynical. Because cynical clinicians become breaking news story clinicians. Please never become cynical. Please never become cynical. That's it. That's all. We're going to be back for part two with another medical crime stories that we're going to share from the clinicians. And I want to thank you so much, Ashley. I'm looking forward to not only doing more of these case studies and reviews, I also am looking forward to putting out sibling bond theories that we have. I want you to just remember, not only don't be cynical, but also be safe. Yeah. You know. Thank you situational awareness because clinicians are getting attacked there are laws that have been passed now that you know pretty much every state has a where it's a felony if a medical professional gets attacked not just by a patient but by a family member or visitor in closing i want to say thank you so much i will talk to you later you have a great day okay peace (laughs) thank you alfie you're welcome. And we'll see you next time for part two of Medical Crimes. I'm going to finish with this missing person case that I got. comes from Reddit. And Mrs. LP brought this story to my attention. It's a fairly new story. This story was posted on Reddit. And this young lady has been missing since October 13th of 2023. Not too far from where I live in the Charlotte area. I'm going to read you the Reddit story. Her name is Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N, Lauren Heath. And the Reddit story says, missing. Share, share, share. Don't post on here much, but I ask people be on the lookout. No matter where you may live, Lauren disappeared after leaving her home Friday. She has not been seen or heard from since. Kindly ask that everyone please share this photo. It's under the Reddit subreddit are without a trace. And it says missing person team. On the other subreddit is R North Carolina. It was posted by expensive underscore flow. And the poster says missing. Missing since 10, 13, 2023. Missing from Indian Trail, North Carolina. Lauren Heath. Description missing date. Again, 10, 13, 2023. Age now, 16. She's a teenager. Missing from city and state Indian Trail, North Carolina. Gender Female, race black, complexion light, height five foot, weight 100 pounds, hair color black, hair length medium, 
eye color brown on the picture that they have of this missing person i'll post a link to this story also it's also on the black and missing website or you can visit www.bamfi.org on the picture they have her with braids location last seen lauren was last seen on october 13 2023 leaving the glen DeLo community on North Rocky River Road near Unionville Indian Trail Road. She was wearing a gray hoodie and white Converse shoes. Circumstances of her disappearance are unknown. Anyone with information, please contact the Monroe Police Department. Again, contact the Monroe Police Department at 704-282-4700. Again, 704-282-4700 or contact 877-97-BAMFI. Again, 877-97-B-A-M-F-I. I'm going to post this link in the show notes as well as Ashley's contact information. I will post a couple of links to those charts that I was reading from so you can get an idea. In closing, live in awareness, never live in fear. Take a first aid CPR, stop the bleed class. It's not a matter of if or when an emergency is going to happen. And what are you going to do if you get caught up in that situation? Because you never know. You could be at a house of worship, a school, a business, community event, concert venue. Emergencies happen everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live on the planet. We want you to be by doers instead of being bystanders, as my partner Doc says. For the Trigger Want to Talk podcast, LPM.